The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass, leaving memories that become legend. Legend fades to myth and even myth is long forgotten when the age that gave it birth comes again. Welcome to Through the Glass Columns, a Wheel of Time read-along podcast. Each week, we will be reading, discussing, and digesting a small selection from Robert Jordan's fantasy opus. This quest is led by Tyler, a true Wheel of Time warrior. I have all stories, ages that were and that will be. And I'll be joined by Greg, a complete novice to the Wheel of Time. The Wheel of Time and the Wheel of a Man's Life turn alike without pity or mercy. Join us each week as we read the Wheel of Time in our own sweet time, traveling deeper and deeper through the glass columns. But what does that even mean? No, 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 no. no. You don't get to find out yet. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Through the Glass Columns, your weekly Wheel of Time read-along podcast. I, of course, am Tyler, your host who knows and loves these books and literally has a countdown until all of you get to know what the title of the podcast means. And I am joined by Greg, who probably forgot how long that is, so knows it's approximately sometime in the future. Greg, how are you doing with the ambiguity of your future in this podcast? First, nice job uh, remembering the catchphrase that opens the show. Uh, Listeners will recall that I last week slash last night totally butchered it. Uh, Two, I remember because it's near my birthday. It's my birthday gift is next March. I get to find out what the podcast title means. So take that. Stop saying I don't know nothing. I know one thing. It's worth noting for viewers, if you are paying attention to timey-wimey things, what Greg learns in March, you may learn in April. (laughs) No promises were made. Uh, (laughs) I think that we are both in a good mood because we both got to read two chapters of The Wheel of Time today. As Greg just mentioned, we have recorded within 24 hours of each other at this point. And so we both have a couple of chapters fresh in our minds. And even though these weren't like the most like driving the plot forward, exciting chapters, there was a lot that I kind of got excited reading. And that's what I want out of this book is just a nice little feel good moment once a week. This podcast is achieving its goals, if that's what I get. Uh, Any last thoughts on these two chapters generally before we dive into a chapter summary? Uh, Well, what made it so satisfying that these happened to fall when we were doing consecutive nights is that um, it was like I had a delicious conversation about all these possibilities and speculations. And then I went upstairs immediately after because as longtime listeners know, I record in my basement. Uh, And when I got upstairs, I got to get like half those questions answered pretty quickly. So it was nicely uh, kind of uh, put together and it, it worked particularly well. And it's always fun when there's kind of serendipity in that way. Hey, speaking of serendipity in the face of chance, we should have an ill-advised discussion of a visual object in a non-visual medium. Hey, he did it right this time. <laughs> we are two for two as a podcast, and that is better than the 0 for 3 we sometime, somehow went in the previous episode, even though there should only really be two opportunities to mess up. Uh, so we, of course, are talking about the chapter icon on chapter 24, the second of our two chapters, uh, which is an icon of five dice. All of these dice are arranged in a circle. All of the dice are showing six pips up, although it is should be noted that the shape of the dice is slightly different from what you'd normally see. The pips are arranged in a circle as opposed to the two rows of three that we are used to. And I'm going to leave it to Greg to comment on this, although I will just say 
man, if we're talking about uh, the color of these a lot, that's a lot of dark in this image. Mm. Uh, first, uh, I would never say this to your face, but nice pull with the word pip. Uh, very nice to, to hear that word, de de you know, deployed. Accurately. I read a lot of gaming rule books. <laughs> um, so uh, I think the dominant thing I would say is what you said, which is that this is clearly meant to be a heavily dark image. Everything is presented in outline or with, you know, the pips being dots, uh, not lines. Um, and so it's a very dark image for what I assume is Matt's new symbol, right? That yeah. these seem to be associated with the fact that he has had this uh, experience that put him very much in touch with this old gambler personality. So when I think about gambling, I think, you know, dice games may vary from real world to fantasy world, but I would think it would be high numbers or low numbers. Mm -hmm. And I would think it would be matching or not matching. So the fact that these are potentially high numbers, all matching to me, that feels like it would be a good throw of dice, right? This is a beautiful yeah. Yahtzee uh, if, if you rolled this out. Um, and so that's kind of where my mind goes uh, when I look at the image. Yeah, and I think that this makes sense when we think about kind of the details we've gotten about Matt so far, right? One, if we're thinking about risk-taking, Matt is a risk-taker, not just in the gambling sense, but in the every decision he has ever made sense, right? This is mm -hmm. the boy who made the decision to run with the Horn of Valir in a way that it could easily be dropped if he ran into a bump. Um, so this feels like an appropriate symbol. But then as you say, the fact that it's all sixes, I think makes us go, oh, this is really good luck. And then we combine that, as you said, with this new kind of glimpse at Matt, both in the previous chapter and sorry for those of you who do this one chapter at a time, tiny tidbit looking ahead. <laughs> Matt also talks about taking a gamble in this upcoming chapter. And so this idea of Matt as kind of being lucky is something that I don't think we've necessarily hit on as a characteristic we've noticed about him, but is a thing that's kind of been danced around in a variety of different ways throughout the season. Series, so it feels appropriate where we are right now. Um, what do you think about the fact that Matt's symbol is the one that is so dark? Because I know we are kind of done talking about the television show, but if we were talking about TV show, Matt, like dark makes sense. That doesn't seem to be the case for what we've gotten in two and a half books so far. Um, I think that Matt was under the shroud of darkness uh. and so much of what he's describing sounds like this old persona that is being drawn out of his Manatharian blood is anti-Aes Sedai. So it feels dark as in the opposite of light, not actually perhaps dark or or really evil, but, but just so opposed to light is kind of what came to mind. And then, uh, because I like to always make sure anything remotely intelligent is followed by something stupid, it also reminds me of one of the best episodes of uh, another of our obsessions, Community, or at least my obsession. Mm. You're mild-like, uh, but... Um, it reminds me of the very famous uh, episode um, that is memed to death of the the uh, the chance of the die and each die leading to a different outcome, a different universe. And so in that regard, the joke at the end of Community is that they visit the darkest timeline. Um, they don't end up there, but they visit the darkest timeline. And so combining kind of how that looks with, um, you know, the fact that it's so dark that I'm like, oh, are we in the darkest timeline of this character? 
Well, and I really like that because the one last thing that I had to bring up was the fact that we've had Chance mentioned a couple of times earlier in the book in discussions of Tavirin with, I think when we talked about uh, Arthur Hawkwing a previous couple chapters ago, um, we mentioned, uh, I think Lan said sometimes he would roll the dice and roll all sixes over and over and over again. And so that I think is kind of an interesting thing to be thinking about. If we're thinking about Matt's luck in battle and we're thinking about Matt's luck with the dice and then we're thinking about kind of fate and all of this kind of tied together i think all of that makes us go okay this feels like a really appropriate symbol for matt and it kind of gets me excited to be like okay what other dumb things is he going to do that he will kind of luck into uh i would love to see that be the dynamic for a character for 12 more books i won't promise whether it is or not but Symbol is promising, Greg. Uh, any last thoughts about uh, this image before we move on? Uh, just to respond to what you said is, I do think there's a way in which the dagger felt like the end of Matt's story. Like mm. it's been resolved and so he needed a new plot line. And so I really appreciate the way you just phrased that because that's this is not a new plot line. This is just showing you that the thread of the dagger is but one in the weaving of the wheel in the book. Yes. Ooh, this man has read two and a half wheel of time books. That was solid work. Um, I am just going to then ask the question that I assumed you were going to give for our viewers. Uh, yes, Matt's dice is one of the images that is in my tattoo. Only one more until we can release the image of that with no potential spoilers. Uh, That's the real Yahtzee, friends. That's the real Yahtzee. With all of that out of the way, uh, why don't we then dive into chapter 23, sealed so we begin exactly where the previous chapter left off the light is burning and then suddenly Egwene steps out of the arch um, she is asked immediately whether or not there is anything wrong with her she is tested by Sherium to see whether or not she is injured or has been harmed um, and then Egwene asks whether or not there's anything for her other than just to fail Rand over and over again um, Egwene tries repeatedly to try to ask what was going on with the arches and why why there was that kind of interference that was being caused. Um, and she's basically told to be quiet so they can finish the ceremony. They do so and give her her Aes Sedai ring, although it is noted there's a specific finger she must wear it on, whereas full Aes Sedai can wear it whenever or however they would like. Um, the Merlin says that she is going to investigate what happened with the Terangriel. Elida um, basically reveals that she hates what she calls Wilders and thinks that Egwene should never have been accepted and then leaves abruptly. Um, finally, uh, we get kind of an explanation of what actually happened with this reverberation, as we hear it referred to, from Alana of the Green Aja. Alana says that she feels responsible for not having stepped in and done anything to stop the um, procession of her going through the arch over and over. And then she describes how one time in the past she had seen a similar issue, what she called a resonance between two Terangriel that did basically the same thing. And then Egwene immediately makes the connection to her ring and works even harder to hide it, worrying that that could have been what caused the issue. And Alana says that she actually wants to be punished along with Egwene uh, for not being willing to have, you know, done any of this. She takes herself to the Amerlin and the Amerlin is immediately like, no, of course not. You can go get whipped or whatever if you want to, but none of the other public punishment is going to happen for an Aes Sedai. At that point, Alana leaves. The Amerlin leaves very quickly after 
Arthur asking whether Egwene is okay. And then finally, we get a kind of brief discussion um, where she is basically dismissed. And Egwene kind of thinks for a second about how the Merlin didn't tell her that 13 was an important number with the Black Aja. And that makes her doubt even the Merlin who she had previously not doubted. Finally, she gets to her room. Nynaeve and Elaine are already there. Elaine is crying from her own test and that breaks the floodgate and Egwene starts to feel all of the emotions about her test and that is where we end the chapter. Uh, don't you love the part of this show where I talk uninterrupted for a long time and then immediately need a drink? Greg, covered for me drinking. It's so funny because I was already going to say the summaries are my favorite part of the episodes, the evenings I have a beer, because I just lean back in my chair and start sipping my beautiful New England IPA and just listen for a little while and be like, oh, yeah, I kind of remember those things, uh, especially when I can really half listen. I just read this today, so we're all good. So, um, well, I what's interesting, though, that all that joking aside is I would say the single most compelling thing I found in the chapter was not in your summary, did not make the summary. Um, and that is the very, very last moment of the chapter, which is not just that uh, Egwene breaks down and kind of realizes what she, she's she been through, but the way Nynaeve responds mm -hmm. and says, yeah. you know, essentially we will make them pay, or I want to get the wording exactly right. Make them pay our price. Yeah, that's... Like, I don't know. I it's it's not dark necessarily, but it's uh, it's like intriguing. It's very much like wow. Like there's there's yeah. uh, something still going on under Nynaeve. There's there's a part of me that I think rem remembers in book one when she hated Moraine so much and thought that had kind of gone away, and it's still very much here. I think this suggests. Yeah, I think the thing that we kind of lose in the previous book with the Egwene section being such a short section of that book compared to the Rand chapters, I think is we kind of lose Nynaeve a bit in that book. And I think the consequence is it's easy to feel like some things have smoothed over. And I think you're right here. Boy, have they not, right? Your description of this was like not necessarily dark. My, I don't know why, my immediate reaction when you said that was like, yeah, it's just metal. It's not bad. It's just <laughs> intense um mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a, a really good point, that the end of this chapter takes kind of a very different tone than everything that came before, which I think both kind of highlights how little Egwene is kind of angry about the terrible thing that almost happened to her. But also, as you say, then kind of really gives Nynaeve a really great spot in the spotlight at the end of the chapter. Sorry for the double spot in that sentence. <laughs> Somebody just watched uh, Across the Spider-Verse. Uh, yes, I, I think that's really fun because it it is very much still the fallout from Egwene's events. And and if the last chapter was a really deep understanding of Egwene, it is very much like she experienced it all on her own. And then mm -hmm. those interactions that follow just kind of prove how alone she is. What do, then is the final beat of the chapter, except you're not alone. There are three of us that are yep. suffering through this. I would say maybe three that aren't completely devoted to this way of life. I mean, Elaine was ready to run off if yeah. the punishment was too much. So it seems to me these are I, whatever cliche we can loose cannons, mavericks uh, within the academy, right? That they're not. They haven't drunk the Kool-Aid. Let's just keep throwing the metaphors instead of having a real point. Yeah, I'm down. <laughs> they, haven't <done> it. <laughs> they haven't really been won over by this uh, mythology or this doxology. Sure. 
No, uh, dogma. This dogma. Stick this dogma. to metaphors, sir. Four <laughs> more and we get a free smoothie. <laughs> so they haven't really bought into this dogma. So they are not going to follow the rules. Yeah. At the same time, they're being asked by the Amerlin seat not to follow a different set of rules. So interesting stuff. And that, to me, takes what might have been a kind of ho-hum chapter and is mm-hmm. like, all right, this is really pushing into something interesting. And I think the part of that that really stood out for me and got me really engaged in the chapter is the part that you said about the Merlin kind of asking them to break rules, because there's this really great kind of segment um, shortly after they kind of verify that Egwene is all right and no one is going to die, where Egwene is given back her papers. I think it's by Elida. And then she's worried that Elida has read them. And then Sherium is next to her and she's worried about Sherium. And then she talks to the Merlin, and it's kind of this really interesting interesting dynamic of the Merlin letting her know she knows what the papers are and Elida kind of hinting that she might but not really saying it and I found all of that kind of tension around keeping the secret to be really engaging and it kind of builds off of what you're describing it's this interesting kind of taking this very private moment and immediately exposing it to the light of day and then I think having to keep a secret while that is happening is a really fascinating like front stage backstage thing that's happening all simultaneously for Egwene. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a poker game, right? It's trying yeah. to read the opponents and not tip your own hand and let them know what's happening. And I think that worked really well. And and it is a kind of, well, it's it's an evolution of what we've been learning in this book about this new secret charge and the Black Gaja and the suspicion. It's, it's just, I would say, really amplifying this political intrigue plot line and it reads nicely i mean this as a compliment it reads like you know court intrigue right like it's not a king or i guess not a queen but it is like who which faction is in control and how can you um build off the other like game of thrones in that part of game of thrones (laughs) yeah there were a few parts of game of thrones we're not talking about the boobs and dragons just the other parts of game of thrones but to speak of the boobs and dragon no go on (laughs) uh so i think then uh if we're kind of moving past the kind of initial discussion here uh i find that we get two kind of really interesting character portraits in this chapter of characters that we haven't seen a ton of before right elida we've had a few interesting scenes with but we get kind of this interesting detail of her disliking Wilders and even we talked we didn't talk about this much in the previous chapter but she was kind of against Egwene being tested at all it seemed like and then the other new character we get here is Alana who A is way more open than any other Aes Sedai we have ever met she gives Egwene a straight answer to a question which is a minor miracle Um, but she also is just so by the books in a lot of ways, right? She insists on being punished for not acting on something she maybe could have known was wrong. And I found those two kind of characters really kind of carried me through what for Egwene, I was kind of like, this is kind of a redo of the previous chapter just with people watching. Now I'm like, oh, okay, these new characters gave me something to latch on to. I think that's right. And I'm still having a little of like, Oh, and some other Aes Sedai problem yeah. where I'm like, who are these people? I'm not attached to them. But I did think Alana stood out a little bit more. Um, and I appreciated kind of another repetition of what all the different Aja are kind of yeah. quickly to keep that mythology clear in our minds. Um, where and I then, push. 
Oh, yeah, go ahead. I will just say, and I love that we got kind of the greens take on greens. Because one thing I think that we'll see is like the way Moraine described the blues was slightly different from just like they do causes. And so it's worth keeping an eye on also, like when the greens describe greens, they focus on their relationship with men. Right. And so that's I thought was really interesting and important. Sorry. Just wanted to highlight that. No, I think it's it's worth noting, certainly. And so I was going to say where see that you cut me off when I was going to disagree with you. So where I'd push back on, um, you know, it's more the same for Egwene. I just want to give Robert Jordan a little credit here, because in our conversation a week ago, we talked about how it stunk that she was just kind of over and over again having mm. the same problem. And so I thought it completely effective to have the character call that out and say, totally. uh, it's bullshit. There's our one for the week that I can only uh, save him. Like my life should mean something more than to be defined against his. And so I really appreciated that Egwene got that moment and vocalized it, right? It wasn't that yeah. it was just in her head. It was her... Uh, you know her outburst in this moment with a lot of people around back to your initial point the yeah. part i did agree with yeah a hundred percent and i think that's a really good point and actually a moment kind of adjacently related to it that i really liked is there was a moment where sherryum kind of finishes healing her and then Egwene asks for the second time whether or not or uh, whether she's going to get an explanation of what happened with the tear angry L. And when Sherium doesn't answer her, Egwene's response is tell it straight now. And she gets like a look from Sherium, and then she adds like an apologetic Sherium Sedai. And I couldn't tell whether that was a moment of Egwene kind of doing what you're describing, doing that like, I'm going to assert myself. I am not someone you can just push over, tell me. Or there was a part of me that was wondering if it was almost like a carryover from her last vision. She still thought of herself as the Merlin and could push around just a random Aes Sedai like Sherium. I couldn't decide which of those theories I was more kind of convinced by. Yeah. And I mean, in particular, in light of the next chapter, do we have to yeah. choose, right? Could it be, could it be both? Um, I think uh, is worth thinking. Um so I, I also just want to note, because it was part of uh, my opening remarks this episode, that then we talked a lot last week about the interference and kind mm -hmm. of wondering what it is that caused it. Um, and it's it's kind of the typical answer to one of those where it's like, oh, it's when two Terra and Griel are near each other. Um, but then it's like, well, that came too easy. So is it it could it still be that Nynaeve is special right. or a, uh, you know, a chosen one of some kind that is is causing this to be more intense? Um, I thought it kind of too easy how they're like, yeah, when we get too near each other, there's a buzz exactly like that. And then they both melt. I was like, so then you yeah. knew like it, I, and I, I understand that's part of the plot of the book, but it felt like that's too easy an answer. I think there's more to this mystery. Yeah, and this is a really tricky thing that I think Robert Jordan does is sometimes he creates mysteries that immediately fizzles out, and then sometimes he creates mysteries that seem like they fizzle out and the fizzling is the red herring. And I don't want to say which of those this is, but I always think kind of the brilliance of Robert Jordan is every time that I think I'm like, oh no, this plot, it went nowhere. Either it comes back out of nowhere or I'm kind of glad of it because it almost serves as a red herring for the plots that do come back out of nowhere. So um, I guess what I'm saying is he's playing three-dimensional chess. Stop criticizing the moves, Greg. Ooh, we we forgot three-dimensional chess in, in our list of oh, metaphors right. we overuse. Absolutely right to get that one snuck in. Um, uh, yeah, 
I was just going to say, I don't have much else to say other than I thought that the sequence at the end with Elaine and Nynaeve was just really well done. But I have I have nothing to say about it other than like, bravo, Robert Jordan. Well, and it felt earned. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I again, now that we've watched the show, I'm thinking a lot about how they'll portray these events, even though the question is probably better is, will they portray certain events the way it takes kind of liberties? Um, but it made me think about like, you know, it feels like she should have her breakdown right away, but it is actually much more human to get out of the high pressure scenario. Like, yeah. you know, I, I think you and I are the same way. If something bad happens in class, we can hold it together. And then like yeah. after the fact in your office, you're like, oh, it's so stupid. I should have stepped in. I should have said this or whatever it was. I assume yeah. I have never like broken down sobbing in this kind of emotional way. Maybe you have, but the is that not how first days of class work for you? <laughs> but you do have that kind of regret and that immediate totally. like flood of emotion. So um, other than that, what I'm going to do, holding up my notebook here. So I want to just note a meaningless milestone. So when Tyler asked me to join this podcast, uh, he bought me a notebook to track the, the chapters. I right? will say I bought him a notebook despite him a week before telling me he doesn't like <laughs> notebooks as gifts. So I started a little notebook and it begins on page one since it was after we began. It begins with chapter three, the peddler from uh, Eye of the World. And in completely meaningless milestones, that notebook is now full. And I had to turn the literal page and start a new notebook. So while we track our way through the book series and through individual books and percentages, let us just also note I'm in notebook number two of our journey. Man, I can't wait until you're on notebook six and so mad at me that we're still going. <laughs> Chapter 24, Scouting and Discoveries. Matt wakes up determined to escape Harvalan, but still with no idea how he is going to do so. His memory is still foggy in some places and has gaps in others. Um, he starts to take some food that's been laid out for him and begins getting ready. Um, and he's noting how much better he looks, but he does still look fairly sickly. He takes his dice and he leaves. Uh, he wanders the tower looking for one of the girls that he knows. He approaches some tower guards trying to figure out whether or not they recognize him. He speaks to a bridge guard and they immediately recognize him and tell him there is no chance he is getting across a bridge no matter what. Um, Matt then runs into Elsie Grinwell seems to try to make conversation with her. She seems off, brushes him away and then he eventually makes his way to the practice yard where it seems that the warders and their students are practicing practicing. He sits, starts juggling, and then he realizes that he is watching Gallad and Gawain sparring. They spar for a bit before Gawain recognizes him and asks after his health, asks after his sister and the adventures they've been on. And then Gallad makes a joke, which I put two exclamation points after because I didn't know that was a thing that happened. Um, Gawain asks after Rand, and then they kind of start uh, verbally sparring a little bit and basically Matt insinuates that he could be either of them with a quarter staff. He then bets them that he could beat both of them with a quarter staff. He wants to give them odds and basically what seems to be the kind of leader of the warders in the area, um, uh, 
Hamar comes over and basically offers to cover the bet, even if the boys won't. And so they decide to spar. Uh, they spar and spar and spar. Literally, the only notes I have on this fight is Matt is a baller. So I'm going to move to the end of the fight where Matt is still up and both of the other boys are down. Um, we hear the story of the greatest bladesman ever, who was only defeated once by a farmer with a quarter staff. Um, Matt says he isn't even the best quarter staffer in his village. And then we get a couple of hints that something is a little bit off with Matt. He uh, says the phrase um, time to roll the dice and it's commented that he'd said that in the old tongue and then when he is asked where he is from he says that he is from Menethrin and then immediately runs away so as not to give himself away but is panicking internally because those are not answers he would normally give nor a language he knows how to speak so greg we talked before we got on air about how this was a really good chapter but one that i have nothing to say about it so i'm going to make you talk first what do you have to say about it uh you know i think we are very slowly advancing the plot here. It's important, I think, to give Matt the attempt to escape and just make it clear he can't so that mm -hmm. we're not sitting around going like, well, why doesn't he just run away, right? Why don't they just run out of the house? Uh, then the serial killer won't get them. Um, and so wh what is compelling here, because that's not particularly compelling, but what is compelling to me here is the last moments of the chapter and the two clues you said, the old mm -hmm. tongue and the, the um, I'm from Manatharan, um, really just then made me play the game. Well, how much was Matt in control this chapter at all? Right. Yeah. And I kind of assume now that he didn't know quarterstaff before today. And like, like, I almost assume Matt's not in this at all. I mean, yeah. we know that this old identity um, the, from the heart guard. Right. That's what he's that from. sounds right. Yes. Um, uh, who's completely suspicious of the Aes Sedai and really, you know, doesn't want to be involved. So it's like, oh, maybe that's what's pushing him all the time at the end there's this moment where he's again suddenly ravenously hungry and it's like is that the the real matt trying to eat something because yeah. everything else is out of his control i mean we could fill in a, a million kind of cliche movies where somebody gets possessed or taken over but it it made me by the end of the chapter be like oh i think i don't think matt was involved in this chapter much at all Interesting. And I think that that is something that is left very much open in this chapter, right, is you could read this as this is Matt's thoughts and someone else is driving and or you could read this as like Matt is completely in control. I think the one thing that I would have trouble saying is that the narration is not Matt, right? Mm. I think the behavior and the actions, I'm 100% with you, like how much of that is like instinctual or this like lost memory, but like this reads like it is written by a 19 year old. It is in that correct voice. I, I just have to say that, if nothing else. Um, it's interesting that you kind of highlight that kind of mystery of how much of this is Matt, because for me, the thing that really worked in this section is this I could not read this the second half of this chapter without thinking about Robin Hood right like this idea of like the quarterstaff battle just felt so kind of traditional English folklore legend the you know 
poor farmer with the quarterstaff defeating the knight and blah, blah, blah. I don't even know what stories I'm all referencing, <laughs> but I know I've heard them a billion times. And in the same way that I really loved the chapter where Rand climbs the wall and ends up in the Camelin castle, this also feels kind of like what I would describe as like fairy tale wheel of time to me. And that always just feels like a slightly different vibe, but it works for me in this chapter. I I mean I agree. What came to mind most of all is there was uh I can't I don't think this was our D and D game uh but there was a D and D game I played where I played a wizard and I thought quarterstaff was like a wizard staff and I had a really terrible like first like five levels because I couldn't every time something happened I just hit people with a stick. That's um, awesome. Yeah, and you know it it actually it makes me think a little bit of uh the character stick from daredevil right that mm -hmm. you know the that kind of mythological fairy tale trope where it's like a blind person um you know fill in any donnie yen character of late right the his yeah. new john wick character uh fits that mold uh cheer it from uh rogue one fits this mold where you just uh assume they can't do anything or are completely inept and you get whooped by the stick um and i yeah. think that's effective uh, the fact that you went to the actual Daredevil instead of the much better parody Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and didn't reference Splinter makes me very, very sad here. Um, but other than that, I think that is entirely spot on and the point is really well taken. Um, early on in this chapter, I found there to be a bunch of really engaging moments where I was like, oh, Matt, like it's really nice to finally be in his POV. The one that stood out to me is him like kind of guiding the conversation with the guard to like, can I get out? What is the hint? What have you? And then the second anyone in that conversation mentioned the Horn of Valir, he sprinted away as fast as he possibly could. And like, <laughs> How else are you going to make yourself look guilty about it other than like flinching and running when someone brings it up? So that felt like a very I think we had in the first book we had referred to Matt repeatedly as a rube. That felt like a Matt the rube moment and just rang true for me. But that's kind of what I have in the first half of this chapter is a lot of like Matt rings true moments. And then Elsie Grinwell, who shows up and doesn't seem to remember Matt, but says she does and asks after his health and then immediately runs away as soon as he tries to, like, touch her even just on the shoulder. It's it's a weird encounter. So I guess I'm curious, what do you have to say either about kind of Matt's characterization in the early part of this chapter or the random appearance of Elsie Grinwell? It purely, uh, I'm going to take Elsie's appearance. It purely felt like, remember this character exists, see you later. Um, you know, the uh, person who wanders through just for that reason. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of felt like the first time we met Min, Min was more intriguing, but, you know, the, yeah. the touching thing is a little, enough of a mystery. You're like, what's her deal? Uh, and I assume it'll be a couple books till we'll find out what her deal is. But... Always. <laughs> bizarre that again she comes back because they encountered so many people and it was just kind of seemingly random quixotic adventuring and now it's like oh no this one mattered this one farmer's daughter mattered um it's yeah. hard not to go to like farmer's daughter cliches of like you can sleep in my hayloft but don't touch my daughter or whatever like those stupid tropes but it kind of feels like that in some ways too I do actually want to use this as a jumping point, a jumping off point for something I want to mention, um, which is that 
Robert Jordan is known to do what I call the semi-unreliable narrator, where the narrator will never lie to you, but the narrator will tell you the truth as they see it. So I will say we should at least consider the possibility that what is happening here is Matt is trying to flirt with Elsie. He is surprised the farmer's daughter is not coming on to him, and therefore he perceives her as acting weird and not wanting to be touched. <laughs> so, like, let's be a little careful with this because Matt, you know, he's from the sticks. Sure. And in that regard, is that the gambler? taking yeah. a gamble and kind of pushing Matt to do a behavior that he's not actually capable of. Right. Like, yeah. um, you know, when Urkel gets turned into Steve Urkel uh, or some regards like that, where there we go, there's a good reference for this week. Continue. <laughs> I like that you had a point going and then made a good Urkel joke. And we're like, that's my point. I'm out. Finished. Nope. Nope. <laughs> Drop the mic and walk away. <laughs> well, and I think that to some degree, what we're saying is Matt is a really fun, engaging character because they gave him nothing to do but walk down the hall for four pages. And we both seem to be engaged by it, even if we don't have much to say about it. Um, and then we get Gallad and Gawain. Gallad makes a joke. I was going to say, and he's far more compelling than the boys that we meet immediately after that. Yes, continue. <laughs> yeah, we get a single joke, and that gets double exclamation points, as opposed to the character before, <laughs> whose monologue is a little bit of a joke the whole way through. Um, this is a sequence that I find fun. It is a sequence that I think is really engaging. It kind of like drops the 87 hints of who are these characters and what are they looking for and what do they know and not know. And then we get an engaging fight and it's done. And I think the Robert Jordan trick continues, which is never write a fight scene that's more than two pages long and bless him for it. <laughs> Even at that, I think the... You know, as soon as the challenges start, I completely had the number of what it was about to go down. And it's like, let's yeah. just I don't even need to read it like I don't. And so I i definitely I, I can't say my toddler distracted me because they were in bed uh, by the time I was reading this last night. But it was like uh, I kind of found my eyes skimming because I'm like, I just yeah. need to get to the part where they're both on the ground and he wins the bet. Um, And then, like I said, that that leads into the kind of most fun of the chapter. But uh, I guess if I had to pull something out, I would say it felt significant that this, um, this ward warder master. Yes. The trainer took such a shine to Matt. Absolutely. Um, that had me immediately going like, well, what if he has to become a warder, right? Like it yeah. felt like natural. He'd get recruited into it kind of feels like the way it did when Jon Snow kind of rose through the ranks of the the night night guard the people on the wall whoever those were yeah uh the that the, they would uh yeah what are they called the night watch night watch uh that the kind of head of that was like immediately impressed by him and kind of pulled him along I'm like oh I I hadn't anticipated that as a potential Matt still not saying I'm sure that's going to happen but it feels that that's a clear possibility now I will know uh he is listed uh his name is given in this chapter as a uh, Hamar Gaidal I'm pretty sure Gaidal is actually a title and it's given second in kind of the Eastern way as opposed to the Western one where the title goes first. So I believe Hamar is his name. And if we're thinking of like, what is the title for a warder master? I'm pretty sure it's Gaidal. Um, that being said, um, I think that character was really interesting to me in that, like there's an early part of the chapter where he could be read as either kind of, 
stringing Matt along so that he could teach Matt the lesson. And then as you're saying, I kind of felt the vibe of like, and then he'd try to recruit Matt and get him to be a warder. Um, but it seemed by the end of the chapter that he was actually a hundred percent in it to teach Gowan and Gallet a lesson. Um, and it seems like they maybe need it because a lot of the time in this chapter is dedicated to all of the women who have waited around to watch those two train. So I found that kind of dynamic of like the the master uh, kind of swordsman who you can't tell how they're training, but you can tell they are kind of in the interest of advancing all of their students at all times. I found that to be kind of the most interesting dynamic for that character. Yeah, I would definitely put him in the stack of I want to learn more. It wasn't, mm -hmm. I, well, I'll just say Elsie did not land in that stack. Elsie's yeah. like, yeah, okay, I guess you're going to tell me more. Whereas this was like a cool enough introduction and somebody who had some depth to them and fit into this larger puzzle that we're talking about. But that I was like, yeah, okay, I want to learn more about this. Yeah, and I think then the other piece there is we're talking a lot about all of the ancillary characters and Matt, but we haven't yet talked about Gowan or Galad. And I think the reason why is you are correct, they are boring. Um, <laughs> but they're also pretty and boring. And this apparently is not just something that is a character descriptor that we can hold on to. It is quickly becoming a plot point, right? Mm. Uh, Galad is knocked unconscious and it is noted there are four Green Aja sisters trying to recruit him as their warder while they are healing him. <laughs> we should be keeping an eye on just how pretty Galad is. Uh, we have an ongoing joke in my household because oh, this is the second time my birthday is coming up in this episode. My birthday is March 9th, which I happen to share with uh, one Oscar Isaac. And uh, basically, whenever he appears in pop culture, uh, my wife says something along the lines of, now there's a man born on March 9th I sure would love. Uh, <laughs> and it really hurts. It's it's uh, deep and, and, and makes me cry a lot. There is uh, nothing it... more important to a relationship than one joke that one person enjoys and wounds the other deeply that is what marriages are built on absolutely and and yet it feels like that level you know there there are just these male celebrities oh and female i, I shouldn't gender it where it's like everybody regardless of their orientation is like damn that is a human who exists and so it feels yeah. like these two uh, well, so here's my problem. They land in this category, but I cannot for the life of me tell them apart which one is which. So it's okay. So go for it. <laughs> I, I am going to both embarrass myself and try to help you. Right. <laughs> so first off, the way that I have always tried to do this for whatever reason, Galad and Gowan, it is physically impossible for me to keep them apart in my brain. But Galad's full name is Galadrated. And that sounds nothing like Gawain. And also, <laughs> once you start tracking, as we will in like four books, once you start thinking about their family trees a little bit, uh, Galadrated sounds like Galad's father. And so it kind of linguistically works. That being said, the way that I am going to embarrass myself on this is you are describing something that I can fully relate to because my wife her favorite band is either R.E.M. or Radiohead. And I legitimately can't <laughs> tell you which, because in my brain, those are the 90s R band. <laughs> totally fair. So uh, if listeners are tracking tonight, we're discovering we're both in unhealthy marriages uh, with distant partners that are hurtful. Uh, no, just kidding. No, I'm uh, the hurtful <laughs> one in my marriage, please. <laughs> with one partner who is, well, we will uh, switch. Uh, not at all. So, um, 
yeah and so that continues to be my problem with the boys i That's can't tell fair. them apart i get one is very handsome one's like milk toast beyond belief but i couldn't put my finger on which is which yeah. i and again it's like stop trying to make me care about them but i can tell i need to because they're going to continue on and be a part of this both because they are very prominent in the society that we are discussing and they yeah. also continue to overlap and seem you know to be a part of one potential Egwene future right she could marry off one of them or she yeah. could be the amerlin seat someday yeah, and I think that at some point, what we have in these last few chapters is what I kind of think of as like the the moment in every book where you kind of like push the little paper boat away from the dock and it's on its own now. And I feel like at right now what we are doing is we are telling all of the kind of background and details that we will need for the journeys to make sense. And I can just feel in this chapter, like it's time for the journey to begin. It's about time to go um oh we're so close i have like four countdowns in my brain that are all getting there we're almost to all of the great <laughs> things that i am excited for all of you to read i have nothing else to say about this chapter because when plot moves forward i can't talk about it because i did in the summary greg was there anything else in this chapter that stood out to you I got nothing else in my notes. Again, I think the pair were fun, but not, you know, yeah. mind-blowingly awesome. Um, it felt, again, like we're just trying to advance a little bit. Um, maybe the only reaction I have beyond that is just that I am starting to really miss the Rand and uh, Perrin plot, yeah. plot lines. Like, we were so in involved with those in the early part of the book and as we move to these they they seem to have been left behind uh irresponsible speculating uh i don't think we're about to get back to them uh maybe i'm wrong but we'll see uh the titles so uh so for listeners um we debated for next week um because there's you know as happens from time to time it's kind of a number that lands right in the middle of whether it makes sense to do two or three uh but doing three chapters for next week actually makes the next few flow a little better um or so tyler tells me i just listened to him and then repeated on the air yeah i was just <laughs> laughing to my myself about you calling it a debate not because there's anything <laughs> wrong with one of us making the decision but <laughs> so uh so we are going to read three chapters for next week um which are chapter 25 questions chapter 26 behind a lock and chapter 27 tell iran Riyadh. uh nice yeah uh, uh, greg pronounced that top. correctly before the episode and i told him he had <laughs> to do it again on air so that's very impressive greg says he is going out on top which means that i am going out relatively quickly as is my goal i avoided the joke i could see you bracing for greg uh i am excited with where we are at in this book we are kind of approaching the halfway mark and if you have learned anything from robert jordan it is that his books accelerate as we get further and further down the line and i think when we get three chapters in a week what that means is that it's almost inevitable we are going to get at least one scene or one moment that gets me really excited and jazzed for the following week so greg do exactly what you did this time go upstairs and read and we will see you next time through the glass columns so ends another episode of through the glass columns we thank you for joining us and continuing with us on our quest to cover all of the wheel of time in our own sweet time 
This podcast features original content developed by Tyler Orm and Greg Cass, and is not in any way affiliated with, associated with, or condoned by the Robert Jordan Estate, Tor Fantasy, or Amazon. All content is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. If you're enjoying this podcast, please seek out the books from your local bookshop or library and join us as we continue our journey. If you'd like to contact us to share your thoughts or give feedback, you can email us at throughtheglasscolumns at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Through the Glass Columns. Thank you once again for being part of this community. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe to the show, leave us a review wherever you're listening, and recommend this show on your social media to help us grow our community. We look forward to welcoming you back next time Through the Glass Columns.